and welcome to the BNP Paribas Asset Management Talking Heads podcast. Every week, Talking Heads will bring you in-depth insights and analysis on the topics that really matter to investors. In this episode, we'll be discussing U.S. interest rates and the economic outlook. I'm Daniel Morris, Chief Market Strategist, and I'm joined today by Ken O'Donnell, Head of Short Duration. Welcome, Ken, and thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Uh, the timing of this podcast, I think, is is appropriate, Ken. We just had a FOMC meeting, uh, got the latest hike in interest rates uh, from the Fed, highest in oh, a very long time, I think we can say. Uh, on top of that, we've just had the U.S. second quarter GDP data first release, but it looks pretty encouraging. Um, if we step back, though, and think about the markets overall uh, and what's happened over the last year, you're a portfolio manager and you've had uh, the biggest increase in interest rates in a very long time. So maybe talk to us first about interest rates globally uh, that are at very high levels and in particular, how have short duration investors been impacted by this? Let me first say that these are these are extraordinary times. Inflation has emerged across developed market economies in ways that we haven't seen in 40-odd in years, to your point. Major central banks engaging in the most concentrated monetary policy cycle to in, in decades. Uh, you know, it feels to me like a, an economist's dream, the, the history being written in, in sort of real time. For all the closet Fed watchers out there, the dynamics of the last two years make the Alan Greenspan days appear quite boring. But so, Sort of back to your question, what does all this mean for fixed income investors? You know, the shift to a restrictive monetary policy results in higher yields and eventually improves returns over time. The transition, as you're alluding to, is from low interest rates to high interest rates was extremely painful for fixed income investors who are generally unaccustomed to experiencing mark-to-market losses in their bond portfolios. You know, that experience, as challenging as it was last year, is all in the rearview mirror. Short-term interest rates have reached levels that we haven't seen since before the global financial crisis in the 06-07 period. Um, Money market yields are are 5-plus percent. And this is in sharp contrast just two years ago, where we were earning zero yields. Bonds currently enjoy a sort of a substantial yield cushion uh, that can serve to offset and absorb market price swings. And in other words, a simple way of saying this is that the risk of negative returns going forward in fixed income is actually quite low. And from a relative value perspective, the sector appears quite attractive. If market yields remain the same in one scenario or at current levels or decline, perhaps in a pattern consistent with what the market's expecting, absolute returns could easily exceed 5%. Now, I guess it's important to put this in perspective. Earning 5% returns when inflation is running at 5% year over year doesn't really generate increased wealth. It simply maintains your future purchasing power. That doesn't do much to, to increase it. But to be fair, that's true of most conservative investment strategies at the moment with inflation running above historical norms. But when you take a step back, and compare alternatives. Given the limited downside, I think investment-grade fixed income stands out as an asset class in this environment and should be the basis for most portfolios. 
Now, I have to say, Ken, I hadn't ever thought much about what economists would dream about, but uh, you're right. I guess if you want to look about things changing dramatically and challenging assumptions, this has certainly been a great time, if you will, for that type of person. So let's pick up a bit uh, on those downside risks that you mentioned. And you know, a lot of that, if we think about the alternative returns we might get from, from equities or, or high-yield bonds and so on, you know, very much a function of how macroeconomy evolves and and how things go with inflation. And uh, with the caveat that I think we've all become quite humble over the last couple of years trying to predict how any of these things are going to go. Nonetheless, we do have to have a view. And I think the key debate, of course, right now is between a recession and a soft landing. You know, we're aware we've had an inverted yield curve both in the U.S. and in the Eurozone for really most of this year. Uh, We all I guess, assume or believe that that's telling us a recession is coming. Credit markets, equity markets don't seem to believe that. Uh, What's your view? I think history can be and has been sort of a useful tool in providing a little bit of guidance on on the monetary policy cycle as a whole. And the market appears to be embracing the soft landing scenario. The recent GDP trend came out above expectations. Admittedly, it's just the first early read, um, but personal consumption is holding up and we're starting to see a resumption in business spending and all that is a positive. But historically speaking, the soft landing scenario is much less common and recessions are much more common. Let's say the proverbial economic growth pendulum tends to swing past neutral in both directions, and this is what results in economic cycles. So now um, recessions and expansions are not created equal, and we have to be careful to suggest that they they are from year to year. They can differ in, in magnitude and depth and length, and fortunately for us, the last large recession, the one that sort of burnt into everyone's memory, the global financial crisis, otherwise known as the GFC of 2008, is unlikely to be repeated anytime soon. Economic conditions today are are, are very different. Uh, there are lower levels of financial leverage and, and far fewer excesses in the system. When we speak of a recession in the context of today's market or this policy cycle, the categorization is much milder and shorter than the GFC. I think a better comparison may be the 2001 recession, which occurred over 20 years ago. Now, it's been a long time, so few recall, but it lasted only about eight months and it had about a two-point rise in unemployment from something like four to six. Another potential scenario is something called a growth recession where quarterly GDP slows very close to zero, but doesn't technically trigger a recession. Now, in both these cases, a recession or a growth recession, we would expect a moderate increase in unemployment, a reduction in consumption, a decline in corporate revenue and profitability, weakening of risk assets and equities and credit spreads. You know, in comparison to the GFC, we would consider this a soft landing, sort of a mild version. And I say that not to be cheeky, but to sort of illustrate that the two scenarios, a mild recession and a growth recession, are not mutually exclusive. They rather sort of share gray areas with very similar economic outcomes in If the National Bureau of Economic Research, the organization that declares a recession, if they were to declare a recession, you know, that alone can result in some 
behavioral triggers that tip the scales a bit in one direction. And this has a tendency to make things sort of worse in the short run, reduce spending, delayed hiring, layoffs, essentially a general retrenchment. And that alone can accelerate the process. So I think in either case, we're, we're pushing towards a lower level of growth, uh, higher risk of recession. I think policy rates at or above 5% generally is restrictive enough to cause some pain to an economy. So that's our base case. Well, it seems like given where inflation still is, it's kind of necessary that the economy suffers some pain. Uh, slowdowns uh, are never much fun, but it's hard to see otherwise how inflation is going to get back to, to the Fed's target. Uh, well, that raises the question then, if we do start to see the slowdown, you know, we can, if we look for it, I guess, can always find uh, some pointers to that. Uh, PMIs, maybe not quite as robust as it were. We know that the manufacturing sector, purchasing manager indices already sub 50. Retail sales, certainly in real terms, uh, starting to weaken. What's going to be the Fed's response to that, especially if inflation hasn't decelerated quite yet? It really all depends on the evolution of the path of inflation. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, we haven't experienced this level of inflationary pressures in over 40 years. And this kind of puts us in unchartered waters. Uh, I think the direction is clear, but the pace or sort of the rate of change is, is pretty uncertain here. A quick decline in reported inflation from here, a, a big drop, would open the door for a reduction in policy rates, sort of an opportunity for the Federal Reserve to reduce the pressure on the brakes, so to speak, and uh, be mildly less restrictive. On the other hand, on the other extreme, a slower rate of change in CPE, sort of sticky inflation, sets up the higher for longer narrative in contrast to the lower for longer that we experienced over the last decade. In my opinion, the balance of risks leans to the latter, the higher for longer. The Fed wants to avoid a second surge in price pressures. In this sense, they'd prefer to keep their sort of options open and be more data dependent as we've been hearing a lot lately. I think this is an important consideration. So let me frame this for a second. The challenging scenario for Chair Jerome Powell on the Fed is where growth slows, inflation cools, that is, you know, prices stabilize or fall, but workers' wages remain elevated versus prior years. This sets up another wave of demand pressures as consumers spend excess disposable income. The only way to avoid this scenario is to further slow the economy to a level where unemployment rises. Now, that sounds a lot like a recession to me. It appears that the Fed would be willing to tolerate a drift in this direction if required to confirm that inflationary pressures are well contained. In short, the economy needs to experience a bit of pain in the labor sector to complete the job, and we're just not there yet. So you have a scenario, Ken, that seems to lean towards greater likelihood that we get some sort of a recession. We can discuss how deep and how long it's going to be, you know, hopefully using the terms like mild or a growth recession to describe it. Uh, how then do you position in the markets for the next stage of the cycle? You know, in our base case scenario, slowing growth and falling inflation, you know, ultimately leads to lower government interest rates. And as you know, when market yields fall, bond prices rise. This generates a capital gain that compensates the bondholder for this elevated coupon that they hold. In that sense, this is an appropriate time to lock in historically elevated interest rates. Now, this begs the question, what area of the curve and what maturity range should be targeted? And the answer is probably best illustrated by examining some extremes. You know, the shortest instruments on the yield curve is the money market segment. Those are maturities that are measured in days or weeks. 
Uh, money markets are the highest yielding investment grade sector at the moment, which is unique, but that may not be the case for very long. On the other extreme, the long maturity segment, say 10 plus years, provides an opportunity to lock in yields for an extended period of time. Unfortunately, this segment of the curve tends to be less sensitive to monetary policy to the Fed, and it therefore generates sort of more limited gains if yields fall. This brings us to a short intermediate range somewhere in the middle, which offers both attractive historical yield given the inverted curve and the potential for capital gains as yields fall. Now, the yield curve is currently inverted and a fancy way of saying that short-term interest rates exceed long-term interest rates. So therefore, on a relative value basis, the two to three-year maturity segment offers the most attractive market yields relative to longer maturity instruments and a strong sensitivity to the policy path. And those are attractive features when the Fed eventually reverses course and normalizes interest rates back to neutral. Now, you may be asking, is it too early to be talking about rate cuts? Uh, we just saw the Fed raise rates. And I think, yes, the Fed has raised interest rates by more than five percentage points in the last 15 months. And they've placed their foot firmly on the proverbial economic break in order to slow the pace of inflation back to their 2% target. Interest rates are currently very restrictive and the economy is beginning to slow. At the moment, though, at some point in the future, inflation pressures are likely to subside and Fed policy will no longer need to be as restrictive as it is. The path to a more neutral interest rate policy would take rates from roughly 5.5% today to 275. Um, that's a few hundred basis points of rate cuts just to get back to neutral. In fact, if the economy slows much more, the Fed may have to move to a more accommodative stance that will require even lower rates. And while that's too early to forecast at this point, we believe it's probably prudent to begin preparing for this eventuality by taking positions slightly further out the curve and locking in interest rates for a long period of time. Very good, Ken. If I could summarize some of the key points that you made, you kind of referenced the the curse of may you live in interesting times. The way you put it is that we're living in an economist dream time, and that isn't always perhaps the best thing. But we have seen really extraordinary moves in interest rates over the last several years. We're now in a position where clearly rates have risen a lot, are likely to continue to increase a bit further. But you highlighted that investors need to be thinking about what's next in the cycle and anticipating the cuts that we'll see, either because we do see inflation decelerate and the Fed's able to step back, or probably more likely, growth finally does slow, the unemployment rate does go up, uh, and then the Fed cuts rates now at this point start to support growth. And you highlighted that along the curve, your kind of preferred area trading off the level of rates and the sensitivity to the cuts that we anticipate uh, is around the two to three year time frame. Well, Ken, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Dan. That's it for this week's episode of Talking Heads. If you would like more information, please reach out to your BNP Paribas Asset Management contact or check out Viewpoint, our website for investment insights at viewpoint.bnpparibas-am.com. We recommend subscribing to Talking Heads on your favorite podcast channel. You'll receive your podcast episodes every Monday afternoon. If you like Talking Heads, leave us a positive review and a nice rating. You've been listening to the BNP Paribas Asset Management Talking Heads podcast with me, Daniel Morris, and Ken O'Donnell. Please do join me next week. Until then, take care. 
This presentation includes a discussion on current market events and is not intended as investment advice or an offer of products or services by BNP Paribas Asset Management. Please keep in mind that the information and analysis in this presentation is only current as of the publication date.